we are something old, something new this morning. New in that we're beginning a new series. Old in that we're returning to the book of Galatians um, after our seven-week hiatus looking at the life of Abraham. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 3. And while you do so, let me just remind you where we're at in the book and what's going on. The book of Galatians is one of Paul's earliest letters. It's written to a church he planted in the region of Galatia. Um, This church was mostly made up of non-Jewish people, of Gentiles, and in the wake of Paul's ministry as he is absent, some men have come from Jerusalem and demanded that the Gentiles in Galatia be circumcised and adhere to the law of Moses. Paul writes with alarm bells going off on his hands and warns them that circumcision and the law won't lead to a deeper relationship with God, but a forsaking of the gospel itself. At this point in the letter, he's argued that faith is always the way to a relationship with God and that Abraham, who is the prototypical Jew, His relationship with God was through faith and preceded the law by 400 years and is made available to all mankind of all nations, all the blessings available because Jesus Christ has inherited them them all and freely offers offers them to all who believe in him. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are in the household of God. And what we're going to focus on um, for the next few weeks is a series we've called Homeschooled, Growing Up in God's Family. And the idea here um, is that for the next four weeks, Galatians 3 and 4 looks at the household of faith. It looks like what it looks like to be part of the family of God. And most of the metaphors that Paul uses in this section are drawn from that concept of the household, including the pedagogue, okay, Uh, which is not really a role we have in life today, but is a cross between a tutor and an au pair, okay? So from young childhood to high school, the pedagogue was the person who oversaw and assisted and trained a youth until they were an adult, okay? They were an authoritative figure in the life of the child, but their goal, like a parent, was to raise them towards independence. They were temporary in role. Keep that in mind as we read this passage here because it will become significant. Let's pick up in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian, that's the Greek word pedagogue, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Let's pray. 
Father, will you come and teach us by your Spirit this morning? Help us to understand how the household of God works and the place that we find ourselves in. We thank you, God, that all who believe in Christ are in Christ, and all who are in Christ are your sons. We pray, God, that you would instill that truth in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Look again with me at verse 24. In fact, let's go all the way back to verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul argues here, and I want you to notice the pronoun. When Paul says we there, he's speaking specifically of himself as a Jew, as one of God's people, Israel. When he says we there, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the holding pattern they've been in. Because God gave Abraham promises, and Israel was waiting for them to be fulfilled. And part of that we see here is that they were under the law. In fact, he says they were imprisoned under the law, not a terribly positive metaphor. Later on, he says they had a guardian of the law. The law acted as their tutor, okay? And it says that it existed in that way um, until the coming of faith would be revealed, verse 23 or verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Okay? And so the law had a significant and valuable purpose for Israel. But as Jesus came, its purpose was fulfilled. Okay? When you read that little word until, the most basic way to read it is a timeline word, right? It's a chronology word. Okay? We have the law until the coming of Christ, right? You draw a line in your timeline, and the arrow is pointing back over history. But the word here in the Greek carries a second meaning, okay? It's not just until Christ, but unto Christ. In other words, the law wasn't a a secondary, uh, as good as it gets until Jesus comes. It was a tutor. It was a guardian. It leads to Christ. The law wasn't just to put Israel on hold, the law was to lead Israel to Jesus. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but so that it might be fulfilled. In the coming of Jesus, the purpose of the law not only came to an end, it came to fulfillment. And so part of Paul's argument here is to go back to the law is to return to the shadows. It's to wish for the light of the moon when the sun is shining at the dawn. To go back is to pursue not maturity, which is what these Jewish interlocutors are pushing. If you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be one of God's people, if you want to be a first-string Christian, And circumcision in the law is the only way. They're saying, this is the path to maturity. And he's saying, no, you're going backwards. This is a regression. This is moving back into childhood. Now, one of the things that is striking about this passage, and I will show it to you, 
is that Paul says here, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do you notice the pronoun change there? We, 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 you. Okay. We Jews were under the law. Were these Gentiles ever under the law? No, that's why they aren't currently circumcised. Okay. But they have been grafted in not as children who start at the ground floor, but as adults. In fact, that's one of the things that probably isn't conveyed by the passage here. When it says that we are all sons, culturally, contextually, this is we are all adult sons. Okay? The idea here is not just that you have become adopted into God's family, although that's true, it's that you are now a mature full rights inheritor. In fact, that's what he says at the end of verse 7. Uh, sorry, at the end of verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you're of Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, inheritors. Now, I told you that there's something strange about this, and here's what it is. Paul looks out at the Greek church, men and women who make up the congregation in Galatia, and he says, all of you are sons. And you go, well, isn't it possible that he's just an arrogant misogynist who's not speaking to the women right now and is not including them? It cannot be, can it? Because just a few verses later, he says, the things that you're using to distinguish one another, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and even male and female, all of those have changed in some way in Christ, and therefore you are all sons. Look, it's really simple. In the Roman world that Paul is writing in, sons have the premium spot, especially the firstborn. They're the inheritors. They take the name. They take the legacy. They take the blessing. Women in Rome were second-class citizens. And so when Paul says to men and women, young and old, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, you are all sons, he's being very intentional. He's taking the language of his day and saying something that that language doesn't usually say. If you were to read this as you are all sons and daughters, you would miss the point. You are all sons. And not just sons. Not just sons of Abraham, right? Sons of God. You see, Paul's been arguing that we have been grafted into the family of Israel. But now he pushes it further. He says, no, 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 no. Not just Israel. You're part of God's family. You've joined the very family of God. And again, not as stepchildren. Not as second-class citizens. That's what he's talking about here. He says that what has happened in Jesus Christ is so significant... There's been a total status change, and in that status change, an equalization of status. And remember, that's his point. Those who are in the church of Galatia who were pushing them to receive the law and circumcision are presenting themselves as insiders, as mature, as what the Gentiles could be if only they would follow in our footsteps, as the true sons of Israel. And yes, you, even you Gentiles, can join us if 
Paul says it's unnecessary. It doesn't add any value. Now, there's something I want you to notice here. Generally, here is the contrast that's important in Galatia. Those who keep the law or have the law or are circumcised or are Jews and those who are not. But when he goes on and he references slave and free, and when he references male and female, he extends the concept here, doesn't he? In other words, Jesus doesn't just eradicate, if you will, religious status, but the other ways that we go about as human beings, as attributing status to ourselves as others. Now let's be really clear here very quickly. Sometimes this text becomes anti-authoritarian or anti-hierarchy. The idea is, since there is no male and female, since there is no slave and free, then there is a democratization of all things. There is no authority. There is no role. There is no distinction. All distinctions and differences are eradicated in Christ. But that's a strange conclusion to draw for a couple of reasons. First is, the pairs here that Paul gives are not hierarchical pairs. The Jews were never over the Gentiles. The Gentiles were never called to submit to the Jews. And same with slave and free. If Paul wanted to break organizational things, then he should have said, no master and slave. Right? And so when he says male and female, in the same way, it's safe to assume here that Paul has room to recognize a different in roles, an order in organization. And more importantly, when Paul addresses these things in other places, that's the best way to make sense of everything Paul says. There's a tendency to take this verse and view it as modern enlightened Americans as the high watermark of Paul's thought. And anything that falls below this line and says anything that might imply order or organization or hierarchy or male leadership or these things must be when he wasn't functioning at his best. But a better way to read and this is true of the Bible as a whole, as well as the letters of Paul, is to find a way to make sense of all it says, instead of just picking and choosing what is most primary. And it's interesting to me that in the letter of Colossians, Paul says something very similar to this. Listen to what he says here. I want to draw your attention here to Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Very similar language to what Paul uses. In fact, it has the same emphasis, not on one of difference, but one of division. You are all one in Christ, is what he says in Galatians. And here he says, but Christ 
is in all and is all. Okay? Both of these passages are about unity, but they're clearly drawing from the same idea. But Paul has no problem going on just a chapter later and talking about distinctive roles within the household and even handling the distinction as uncomfortable as it must make us between a master and a slave. So here, division, no. Difference, yes. And I'll give you one last and most poignant piece of evidence. One of these pairs is not like the others, okay? Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. And then we have male and female. But notice the language. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And then look closely. There is no male and female. Nor, nor, and. What? It's because by saying male and female, Paul reaches all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. This is the exact Greek language of Genesis chapter 1. Male and female, he created them. And so Paul here reaches back and uses the same language, makes a touch point here. But I would suggest to you that this isn't about church leadership. It's about church membership. This isn't about hierarchy or organization. It's about status. And sometimes we have a hard time keeping those separate because in our world, hierarchy is status. The boss doesn't just have responsibilities in a different role, he has privilege. Okay. He has the parking space reserved for the CEO. Right? The two go together. But when we look at the life of Christ, what do we find? We find power, authority, all responsibility, King of kings and Lord of lords. But how does Jesus handle status? Completely different. He separates those two things. And although he is worthy of all glory, he does not demand it. He does not take it. He does not bask in it. He does not define himself by it. And he does not use it to distinguish himself from others. Remember, Jesus walks into a world where there are the religious and the unreligious, where there are the Pharisees and the keeper of the laws, and there are the sinners. And Jesus eats with both. He enters into every household, right? He has time for every individual. There is no one beneath Jesus. In fact, what does Philippians tell us? Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but laid down his rights and became a man and even a servant, obedient to the point of death. Jesus was higher, greater, richer, more powerful, more glorious, and yet he stooped lower, surrendered more, knelt down, never leaving behind his authority or his identity, but clearly leaving behind his status. Okay. 
And so the language that I like, even though it breaks down as all language does, is this passage, Paul isn't talking about an eradication of difference. Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. But the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Slaves are still slaves, but their slavery is relativized in Christ because they are now free men. Masters are still masters, but they are relativized in Christ because they are now the slaves of Christ. Right? There's an eradication of distinction, not difference. Okay. And I mean distinction like with distinction. Right? I mean status. I mean viewing yourself as greater than, better as, more worthy, etc. Now that is significant. Consider what that says. Listen again to what he says here. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's the point that Paul is making? You are all sons. You are all fulfilled, imbued with the status, even to some degree, the status of Christ himself. Why are we all sons? Because we are united to the Son. Okay. Why are we inheritors? Because Jesus inherits all. And if we are in Christ, then we become inheritors with him. In fact, I want to follow the language here. I want us to look at this change in status, if you will, this transition we've gone through. And I want to look for two things. One, I want you to notice very blatantly and obviously it's all about Jesus. Okay? It's in Christ. It's through Christ. We have put on Christ, baptized into Christ. Right? If you're looking for a key word for these verses... It's not the word sons, it's Christ. And then second, I want you to notice that in every one of these, there's no room for boasting. No place to position our posture as above or over others. Let's look at them again here. Look with me at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We are in Christ Jesus through faith. Okay. How is it that we have become a part of Jesus? How is it that we've become connected to Jesus? How is it that we are now in Christ? And we'll focus on those words in just a minute, but first through faith. What has given us the status of sons? Is it our solid work ethic? Is it our pedigree? Is it, well, I'm a blood-born child of Abraham? No. In Christ through faith. And that's what Paul has been arguing for all of Galatians so far, is that the only way to connect with the God who made us is through faith. Now, there is a concern, especially in some of our more Reformed or Calvinist brothers and sisters, 
that an emphasis of faith as something we do personally is somehow meritous in its own nature. In other words, it does distinguish us from other people because we were smart enough to believe or because we just in and of ourselves found faith to place in Jesus Christ. And to be honest, that fear has never made any sense to me because the definition of what it means to trust in Jesus is to recognize that you cannot save yourself. You cannot put all of your faith and trust in Jesus and reserve some faith and trust for yourself. If it were possible that faith as something we do could save, then of course we could take the credit for it. But faith is casting ourselves upon the love and power and goodness of someone else and not of ourselves. In other words, faith and grace go hand in hand. There is a faith that doesn't require grace, and that's the faith of self-righteousness. But it says, God, I know, I'm confident, I believe that I am enough, I've done enough, I've earned enough, so give me what is due. But salvation comes as a gift to those who do not deserve it, only those who trust in the only one who deserved it, Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, how can any status persist if we are in Christ? How can any distinguishing characteristic or mark that says, well, at least I am not like them? One of my favorite short story authors, Flannery O'Connor, she has a story called Revelation. And in it, a woman is sitting in a waiting room for a dentist or a doctor. She's in the South during the Jim Crow era. She's looking around the room, and there are black patients, and there are white patients. And there are patients who seem to be middle class, and there are ones that are clearly not. She begins to pray because she believes in God, and she says, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like those black people over there. But even more, that white trash family in the corner. Thank you. And as she's praying, there's this daughter in the white trash family that's just giving her the stink eye just doesn't stop looking at her. And then suddenly, this all happens at once. The nurse comes out and calls the woman's name, and she stands. And this girl who was giving her the stink eye attacks her, pins her to the ground, and says, you are a warthog straight from hell. And somehow, the woman has an epiphany and realizes that that girl has given her a revelation that it wasn't just some random angry girl speaking this, but this was the word of God to her. And her world is turned upside down. She's wrestling with this and she's trying to think through it. She goes home to her pig farm. She's leaning on the fence, watching the pigs eat. She goes, I don't get it, God. How would you be so mean to me? Why would you say something so terrible? And as she looks up and she sees the sun setting, she has a vision of all of the white trash people and the black people in her community entering into heaven before the respectable and the righteous. There's only one way into heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they bring nothing to the table. So it's by faith. And then I want you to notice that it says in verse 27, 
For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, here we get in Christ, but we get into Christ. Do you know what the difference is grammatically there? In Christ, that's stasis. Into, that's progress, right? In other words, when did we become in Christ? When we came into Christ. How did that happen? Here he says, through baptism. Now again, to make baptism the gateway the one righteous work that we do that unites us with Christ would be to completely misunderstand the whole message of Galatians. But in the time of the early church, the first thing you did after believing in Christ was get baptized. And so Paul takes it as an image here because baptism is not just an empty symbol. It's significant. And the significance is what? Jesus gave us two things to do as his followers two rituals, two rites, two sacraments. Communion is one. We'll take that as a church today. Baptism is the other. Both he told his disciples to instruct people in, to lead them in, and to have them participate in. And they both are about the death of Jesus. Communion. This is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We don't always get this, but baptism is also about death. But not merely the fact that Jesus died for us, but the fact that we have died with Jesus. This is what it says in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that as many who are baptized with Christ have been baptized into his death? Okay. Baptism in the ancient world was about identification. Okay. When we are baptized... We identify with Jesus Christ. We identify with his death, his burial, and resurrection. Okay? We enter into it, if you will, symbolically. That's why we are baptized into Christ. But what does that say? What does that say about status? It means that we are grafted into the beloved Son in whom God is well-pleased. When we are baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we recognize that we enter into his righteous record. We enter into his good works. We enter into his victory over death as the one whom death could not hold. In other words, it's, it's almost so simple it's trite. But the status we have in the family of God is Jesus' status earned, deserved by him. And we have it in Christ. Now this phrase, in Christ, is probably the most significant of all of Paul's language. It's the primary way he talks about what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian to Paul? Someone who is in Christ. And so it is a whole lot more than merely recognizing the fact that we are you know, positionally, if you will, in Christ. In fact, let me use a metaphor. Imagine that you take, took a letter that you had written and you gave it to me and I stuck it in my Bible. Where the Bible goes, the letter goes. What happens to the Bible? Happens to the letter. Okay. If I lost the Bible, I lose the letter. That's positionally what we're talking about. Our fate, our destiny, our identity is now wrapped up in Christ. 
This is why Paul says the most provocative things in Ephesians, like, don't you know that you are currently in the heavenly places, present tense? Not, don't you know that someday you'll go to heaven? He says, don't you know that you're there right now in Christ? Don't you know that you're in the very presence of God right now in Christ? Don't you know that God has poured out his spirit upon you? Because he poured out his spirit upon his son and does not give the spirit in measure. In Christ is the recognition that all we are is bound up in all Jesus is. And we enter into that through baptism as we identify with that. In fact, clearly this is a passage about identity, isn't it? Who are you? Slave or free? Wealthy or poor? Jew or Gentile? Male or female? Paul says at the base level, at the center of your identity, the most defining characteristic you have, you are in Christ. And therefore, you have his identity as the sons of God. Here's another metaphor Paul uses. Look again at verse 27. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. Okay? In Christ is a spatial metaphor. Baptism is an identification metaphor. But this is a clothing metaphor, very clearly. Right? You have put on Christ is in the same way that you would put on a garment. And it's actually a pretty good one in this passage because we do make an association, don't we, between the way we dress and the status we hold. Okay. To be honest, this is the reason why business never appealed to me as, as an area of industry and career. Because this is about as fancy as I am willing to dress. Okay. But why do we do that? Why do we draw a distinction between the garments of a gentleman and a day laborer? Is it really because a suit is better suited to office life? Is it ergonomic or utilitarian in nature? No, it's status. We know what Wall Street looks like, don't we? But here's the thing. Just like the old saying, the cloth makes the man, the status we have before God and before one another is in the clothing because we have put on Christ. Clothing is an external expression, and I hate to say this, an external expression of internal worth. That's how we treat it, isn't it? We assess people by how they look. But here, we have been clothed in Christ, wrapped in his righteousness, enveloped in his identity, so that when the Father looks at us, he sees Christ himself offered on our behalf and we are wrapped in righteousness traditionally brides wore white to express innocence purity and interestingly enough we find a wedding in the Bible that also speaks of a bride clothed in white. But that's not because the people of God who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb are innocent and without guilt. It's because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not because they were pure, but because they were purified. Not because they were perfect, but because they were perfected. 
And so again, do we find any ground for division? Do we find any ground for distinguishing status? And more significantly, effectively Paul is saying here, when he goes on to say there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, he's asking you to choose. He's saying there's two ways to look at life. One is to make your most discernible characteristic, your most defining trait, some distinguishing mark that separates you from other people. It's better or worse. Or to find your status in Jesus, which doesn't separate you from others, but actually binds you to them, unifies you with them, breaks down the dividing barriers. That's why he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our world, especially at a time like this, is looking for a way to unify. Looking for a way to recognize the mistreatment and the hostility to those who are different from us. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about racism or classism or sexism. We know as human beings the world runs rampant with these status approaches. In fact, ironically, Anytime we try and address these things as human beings, what happens? We just reverse the roles. And so the hated become the haters. Or the lesser tend to take their lessedness and call it blessedness. And so we reverse metaphors. We turn derogatory terms into prideful statements. We seek to demonize those who have demonized us. Even when we try and distance ourselves from things, we pretty soon posture ourselves in a place of self-righteousness. And now anyone who doesn't see the world as we do is ignorant, uninformed, etc. It's really hard. But Paul here gives us a secret. And a secret that makes actually quite a bit of logical sense because it recognizes that there is one defining characteristic that is significant for unity. And it's this one, saved. Jonathan Edwards says that there's something about the gospel that cultivates us in us simultaneously, a confidence and a humility. Confidence because Jesus' sacrifice was that significant, that powerful, that evident of God's grace and his love. Humility, because we needed that. We don't bring anything to the cross on our own that earns or merits or supplements what God has done in Jesus Christ. We come empty and leave filled. We come sinners and leave righteous. And so it gives us the confidence and the humility. And those are the things that move towards, that gravitate towards unity. And the truth is, and you all know this to be the case, this doesn't mean that the church always lives this out. We are just as capable 
as dividing along racial lines, along economic lines, and a lot of times we're not even aware. It's very easy for us to say, anyone is welcome here. But, oftentimes, we make distinctions. We draw lines. And they're not hard lines. It's not, I won't sit on the bus next to this person. It's, I won't ask this person over for dinner. They're not conscious lines. It's not, I'm not really into those type of people. It's just we gravitate to people like us. But who is people like us, according to Galatians? We are all sons, those for whom Christ died, those whom God has grafted into the family and has made eternally your brothers and sisters. To have Christ in common is to have, as it says in Colossians, all in common, because Christ is all and in all. Again, this isn't about differences. And this is one of the ways that foolishly humanity has tried to eradicate division is to eradicate differences. To take away their significance. And usually what happens is the dominant culture, wherever it is, becomes the lowest common denominator of what's normal and everybody else is asked to conform. But the way the church is supposed to work moves not away from diversity, but towards it. Think of the vision that John receives in the book of Revelation, where he sees a multitude, too numerous to measure, of every tribe and every tongue and every ethnicity praising the same God. Does he see there a mass of homogenous transformed to be all the same people? Does he see there the silencing of differences and the accommodation of a single way? No, he sees a multifaceted, every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every economic class, shoulder to shoulder, praising God. Listen, whoever you are this morning, you know what it's like to have to live for status. You've experienced it in the workplace. You've experienced it in your family. You may not know what it's like, as some people to do, do to be second-class citizens all around, but nobody is inoculated from status, and sometimes the fact that you have it is its own pressure, because you've got to find a way to keep it, to live up to it, to earn it, to deserve it, to manifest it, to make sure that nobody treats you lower than your station. We can look at our life and we inherently disqualify ourselves or disqualify others from relationship, sometimes even from just life. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter where you're at this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for three generations, going backwards, or 30 years, or three days. 
It doesn't matter if you've got your stuff together. It doesn't matter if you're still having a hard time wrangling some particular sin. It doesn't matter if you're recognized or unknown, marginalized or prominent, rich or poor. You are the Son of God. You are in Christ and therefore anticipating an inheritance. Jesus tells a story about two sons who grew up at home, in a wealthy home, and one of them feels just the oppressive nature of being under his father, values his independence, and so he comes to his dad and he goes, look, I know traditionally you would dole out your inheritance after you die, but I'll take it now, and I'll live as if you were dead. And he leaves home, flush with money, and goes to make his own way in the world, and he lives it up until he has nothing left. One day, because there's a famine in the land that he's gone to, and all of his resources are gone, he sells himself into a pig farm to take care of the pigs. And he's looking at the slop one day, what the pigs are eating, and he goes, boy, I wish I ate that well. And suddenly he has this epiphany, and he goes, wait a minute, even the hired hands of my father ate better than this. I'm going to go back. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. I told him he was dead to me, so... I'm probably dead to him, but maybe he'll hire me on as a worker. And so he heads home. And on his way, he's rehearsing this little speech, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but take me on as a servant. And while he's doing so, his father sees him from a far way off, comes, embraces him, and before he can even get through his speech, he calls for a clean robe and new sandals and the inheritance ring on his finger. He kills the fatted calf and throws a party This character is just overwhelmed by the grace of his father. But there's a second son in that parable. The second son is the elder brother. And unlike the younger one, he stayed home. He kept working. He was present and active. And he comes home and he sees this party and finds out for its brother, it's for his brother. And he sits down and he crosses his arms and he says, why in the world would I go in there? And the father comes out to him as well. And he says, son, come into the party because your brother was dead and now he's alive. And he says, my brother? I don't have any brother. Your son who took all that we had and ran off and spent it on whores. And now he comes back and you throw him a party. He says, never once have you killed a goat for me and my friends. And the father says, son, all I have is yours. You see, The older brother also thought of himself as a servant and not a son. He says, I slaved for you. I toiled for you. I did all of this work. I deserve better. But he didn't have to earn his inheritance. It came with the last name. He was born into it. And all the father wanted with both of them was them to be in the party, to enjoy the wealth and the riches with him. Status can keep us from God. I am unworthy. I've messed up too many times. I've been relegated to second-class status as a Christian. 
and I may make it into heaven, but it will be by the skin of its teeth, and thankfully that's enough. Or it can keep us from God because we don't need him, because we're doing just fine on our own, because God is demanded so much of us, and we've put in the effort, and we've earned everything he's ever given us forever and ever, and amen. But when Paul uses the word son here, and when he addresses the idea of inheritance primarily, the inheritance of a Christian is God himself. It's a relationship with the God who created us and loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us and is building, as we saw in our catechism last week, a place so that we might eternally be where he is You'll never get this if you don't have children. But parents will always tell their children, all of them, that they are their favorites. And it's not just something you say to protect the fragile ego of your children. It's just what it means to be a parent. It's true. If you are in Christ, right now where you are this morning, Think of Jesus' baptism when the heavens open and a voice speaks and says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. If you are in Christ this morning, God speaks that way of you. And then because it's important to Paul's argument and it's important to where we're going next, What does he say in verse 29? And if you are Christ, what have we seen? In Christ, through faith, baptized into Christ, we've put on Christ, and now if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ. The last metaphor is one of ownership. It's one of belonging. Under the heart of all of our hunting for status is just that. We don't want to truly be the richest or the greatest or the most famous. We don't truly just want to be in the in crowd because there's some value in in. We just want to be in community. We just want to belong. If you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, He says, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Here's what he's trying to tell the Galatian church, and here's what you need to hear this morning. He says, you're already there. Everything these interlocutors, everything these troublers who have come to Galatia are offering, he says, it's already yours. He says, don't become the elder brother who strives to earn what's already his by nature. Don't become the one who works so hard out in the fields, forgets that the gift itself is sitting at the dining room table just waiting for a conversation. In the same way, this morning, where you're at, as we worship, as we pray, Enter boldly into the throne room of grace. 
knowing that, yes, God has thrown open the gates wide and given us access in Christ. But more than that, he's made us his children. You're not coming in as a client of God the Father who has rights because you pay him on retainer. You're coming in as an adopted child who's been freely given a relationship, who doesn't just stand before the dock but climbs into the judge's lap. I am thoroughly convinced that the way to unity is that way. That what eradicates division and our obsessive need to define ourselves by other things, what eradicates that, what removes it, is the deeper we associate with and live out our identity in Christ as the children of God, as the inheritors of all the promises, as those who are in Christ, baptized into Christ who have put on Christ, who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, for us to receive this identity, we have to surrender our own. For us to enjoy the status of being your children, We have to stop defining ourselves by other things. This morning, Lord, just in this one way, we want to learn what Paul says in Romans when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I pray, Lord, in our relationships that we would not be conformed to the standards and status distinctions that the world draws between in and out, between high and low, between good and bad, between successful and failure. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would be transformed, that we wouldn't be defined by what we've done or who we are, but what you have done, defined by who you are. I pray, Lord, for any places where we catch our own life in even in this church where we treat people through status and standard that does not belong where we distinguish one from another pray that we would repent of that that we would know that we are all one in Christ pray this in your name this morning